0: hey everybody welcome to applying to everything a show about our passions the world and where they overlap i'm your host bruno falcon this week i sit down with historian and fellow catholic university alum kyle dalton we talked about history facing bias and learning from our past part of that being how we met at catholic and one other embarrassing editor's note about halfway through the episode i mixed up lafayette and lafont Believe me, there's an explanation, but it's not that interesting. Anyway, apologies, and enjoy. I was thinking the other day about how we met in German. It was interesting being in a space with uh, with someone else who was doing school in a way that was very direct and intentional, because without this degree, no one will hire me, and they're here to go to college which is not that.
1: I mean, they were going to, to go to, uh, they, they were going to college because their parents wanted them to. And also, Catholic U was a great place to, to get some coke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, here's the thing. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that. And like, it, it, took, me, it took me until the very, I did, it wasn't until like, because I'm ta- I was taking all philosophy classes, which means mm-hmm. 90% of the, cl- the time, I was hanging out with seminarians and people who wanted to be around seminarians. Yeah. And that was a very different thing that was a very different it was just a very different environment I I feel like you probably had more of that going through the history program
1: I saw a bit of both actually I got kind of both in equal doses and a lot of that was because my ex also went to Catholic U and she went as as a grad student Uh, and the grad students were there to learn it's a good graduate program Uh, those those guys came out with with a robust knowledge and and uh, strategies for for staying in the field and and Keeping up with academics. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of the undergrads didn't see it that way. They right. weren't coming to a Catholic U to get a history education. They were coming to get a degree their parents were paying for. Right. Uh, and there were a lot of kids who wanted to be jocks. Uh, it's it's kind of strange to go to Catholic U and, and want to yeah, be a maybe, jock. Yeah. But uh, they, they tried. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I saw a little bit of both. Uh, the kids who were there just kind of dicking around and, uh, also the more serious <laughs> academics.
0: It was, I mean, it was an interesting, it was an interesting place and it's like, it's, it's tough because I try not to give it too hard a time.
1: And I'm right there with you. I mean, it, it uh, the education that I got there was really supremely helpful. Uh, I, I really did learn a lot about the practice of history, mm-hmm. not just history, but the practice of it and how to do it, how to right. craft arguments, how to collect evidence, uh, how to sift through that evidence critically. All of that is is essential to not just history but just to daily life, critical thinking, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought they they did a fantastic job at that. But there is also all that other stuff.
0: My my perception was that it wasn't just and and granted, I was in a department that was a little bit more. It was built on antiquity. Like if, yeah. if you want if you want an education in medieval and Thomistic philosophy, in the U.S there's no better place to go if you want an education in a broad spectrum of philosophy that uh, that crosses contemporary lines then for the love of god don't go to catholic um (laughs) as you as you left school and came out into the into the world of doing more contemporary historical research how much of that carried through was your education still sort of locked into that classical structure
1: when it came to schools of thought, it was still very classical. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catholic University is probably the last place you'll find a Marxist historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the actual technique, uh, the crafting of, of arguments, the uh, uh, critical thinking about others' arguments, uh, possible objections to your own, collecting evidence and sifting through it, all of that uh, has carried through tremendously. I still use all of that in, mm-hmm. in just day-to-day life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that goes for both the blog and... Uh, mm-hmm. And also for the museum. Um, When I started working at at London Town, there was a lot of stuff that was assumed or wasn't known. Mm -hmm. And nobody had bothered to do the research. Or uh, that research had been done quite some time ago when the tools were not available. Right. Uh, There was an excellent historian there uh, who worked for the archaeology team. uh, And she wrote her master's thesis and doctorate dissertation on the history of, of the town. Uh, and did a great job um but again this was 1999 uh right. that's that's well before text searchable databases that's before uh things like uh, newspaper archives uh mm-hmm. easily available online uh, all of these tools which make it so much easier to do the research right um uh, so i am standing on the shoulders of giants i don't want to say nobody was doing anything there but it had kind of stagnated uh in in recent years mm-hmm. and uh those tools weren't being used uh, so with that education, I was able to bring that to the fore and and really change the way we thought, uh, not just about the town but about history.
0: That's that's interesting because I think I fall into the the same trap that a lot of people who don't study history tend to fall into, which is that it's kind of it's kind of a dead science, and that the actual process of it is is now the exchange of opinion and interpretation rather than the actual work of rediscovery. Which is, I think, a symptom of the post-truth era and also a, a sort of something that's somewhat symptomatic of the uh, the internet age. You have this idea that since everything's at your fingertips anyway, it's assumed that you have all the information that you would need. In educating and in uh, in the blog, in the research that you do, do you run into that, like do you run into that often? Like that sense of we already know this? We're just arguing about how we interpret it? Not as often as you might think, but it
1: does occasionally come up. Uh, I was just recently at the Museum of the American Revolution in uh, Philadelphia, which is an amazing museum, mm-hmm. uh, and I got to meet with, uh, with their public programs and education people, uh, just talk shop, talk about what it is to work in a museum, and it, it is an amazing experiential museum full of great artifacts, and uh, they, were, they were telling me they were going through some of the Yelp reviews. They've only been open for a month. Mm-hmm. And they've had a few, and it is a very small minority, but they've okay. had a few that have said, this is all stuff I could have looked up on Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, you could look at, at pictures of the museum. <laughs> you could collect the, the various points of data. Mm-hmm. But uh, given that you're writing a, a poorly uh, written, uh, grammatically incorrect, the Elp review, I don't think you have the tools to put together a narrative the mm-hmm. way that they have. Right. Uh, and uh, one thing I found particularly interesting about that museum is it is uh, academic in a way that most museums are not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most museums are 10, 20 years behind the time. I remember when I went to Catholic, uh, there were professors who were saying that, saying, you know, these museums are arguing over questions that have been answered by well-written books from the 70s. Uh, And uh, I I liked that the American Revolution Museum was asking people to do the process of history. Uh, Not just here's the facts, but also what... Is a revolution Uh, was the American Revolution revolutionary in the way that we think of it or was it just a slight reordering of the social uh, Hierarchy you know (laughs) changing out the gentry for the crown. Yeah, Uh, and and that's that's a question that doesn't have a solid single answer There's a lot of ways you can answer that Mm. Uh, So they're asking people to do the process of history and I I really appreciated that so uh, Yeah, you sort of get you can you get both in that in that institution you get both people who think history is a dead science, it doesn't change. But then you've also got people who say it does change. And in fact, it's, it's constantly changing. There is no single answer.
0: That's fascinating because, and it makes me really want to go to the uh, Museum of the American Revolution the next time I'm in Philadelphia because um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is that that question, did we just replace the crown with gentry, has been on my mind constantly over the last few months just think especially when you look at uh, contemporary social politic and that as we describe the declaration of independence and the constitution of the bill of rights as living documents there's an argument i think there's an argument to be made that we won't know the answer of that question until the america the united states of america as we conceived of it at the end of the 1700s stops existing we are we are the experiment to answer that question and we won't we won't really have an answer for it until you know after until after whatever this thing is comes to a close which isn't necessarily to say until you know when the country fails but like when until we shift the the broader social structure away from or out of whatever the current whatever the current power breakdown is, which is different from what it was at the time, but which is still, you know, built on that same structure, we won't have a solid answer.
1: And we may never have uh, a solid answer to that. The, mm-hmm. the issue is that uh, history often works uh, on Einstein's theory of relativity. You, you can only measure things in relation to other things. Mm-hmm. And the way we measure history, the way we track history, is through people. Right. And everybody's perspective is different. Uh, there's a loyalist right here in Annapolis named Anthony Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Stewart of the Annapolis Tea Party fame, burned his own ship when he tried to uh, pay taxes on tea. Uh, after the Boston Tea Party, not the brightest guy. But he wrote a letter <laughs> in 1775. And in this letter, uh, he said that the country was little accustomed to the ravages of civil war. And he called uh, what we would c- come today to know uh, as the revolution as the dreadful hydra. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very apt description Mm -hmm. of of revolutions and civil wars in general, is that there are a lot of perspectives on the revolution. Mm -hmm. And your perspective on it is going to be very different depending on who you are. If you're just some sailor in Boston who's worried about being legally kidnapped by the king's servants... And if you resist that, they can send you back to London to be tried. Well, that's that's a tyrannical government. Mm-hmm. And the revolution throwing that off and ensuring your safety, uh, that that is a true revolution. But if you're an enslaved man in the Chesapeake, uh, and the British promise you your freedom and give you arms to fight back against... Your oppressors Mm -hmm. well the revolution is very different
0: for you that's a revolution too but it's it's a revolution of a different sort right mirroring the perspective nature of of history as it happens how much do you feel like the interpretation in our time ends up being the history that matters like there's there's the i can't remember what it's i can't remember who coined the phrase to the victor goes the history Mm -hmm. um that that you know, history is about winners and losers and winners write the story. As we gain more information and and try to create this more universal perspective, as our view becomes more global, we're able to sort of reassess our preconceived notions about what historical events meant and what they were. But how much do you think that the interpretation of the thing is the work that we're doing? And how much is that interpretation primary or or secondary to the the sort of accurate and objective retelling can you can you objectively tell the story of history in in a way that's accurate and 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 effective especially in in today's especially today where opinion is so king
1: i think that uh opinion is still important uh i am not of the postmodernist uh school of of history in that uh, there there are no discernible facts; that everything is open to question, uh, that there is no such thing as as uh, factual uh, objective history, because uh, there is uh, there are things that we know uh, existed in the past. There are events that we know happened, uh, and just to say we can't trust anything is is a fool's errand. That is the post truth society in, in a historical cons- construct. Uh, but I, I think that. Opinions still should come into play
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and that gets a little tricky too. Uh, there are Historians Marcus Redeker comes to mind right away uh, who do not attempt to hide their opinions uh, they don't allow it to override their uh, dedication to the truth mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they, they are very upfront and honest, saying, this is what I believe. I am a political actor. Mm-hmm. This is, this is uh, important to me and, and important for you to know going into my book. You should know what my opinions are before you start reading. Uh, and then, of course, you've got others who throw objectivism out the window uh, and embrace their, their political opinions so strongly that their books become next to useless. Right. Uh, famously, there was, there was a poll uh, some years ago on the History News Network, of the least reliable history books, the the worst history books ever written. Number one was David Barton's uh, Jefferson Lies, in which he tried to argue hilariously that Thomas Jefferson was an evangelical Protestant Christian in the modern (laughs) sense. And if you know anything about Thomas Jefferson's religious beliefs, that makes no goddamn sense. Uh, The number two book was Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Uh, so these are two people on exact opposite ends of the political spectrum, mm-hmm. but both of their books were incredibly problematic because they were trying to impose their opinions on it. Right. Uh, whereas historians who uh, are very politically active and very politically outspoken, like Marcus Redeker, can still produce excellent history books, mm-hmm. uh, books that have a certain level of opinion in them, but are still dedicated to the truth. Uh, now, whether our institutions, our museums pull that off is very case by case.
0: Right. I mean, when you look at the last two years and you look at the um, the push for, especially in American history and in U.S. history, bringing in a non-European perspective, specifically a non-European white perspective, the popularity of an indigenous people's history of the United States, which is a phenomenally interesting and challenging book. And when you then look at how contemporary history of the last century is being approached how much do you think that's shaping that's starting to shape the way people are addressing some of the perspectives that american museums tend to present and and do you think that do you think that 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 will require a reassessment of some of not, not the, the, uh, not the investigatory history done, but the, the perspectives and, and conclusions drawn by historians, uh, you know, of the last, you know, hundred years.
1: There is a disconnect between academic history and uh, museums, like I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, so books and, and documentaries, uh, sometimes they don't have as much effect as they should. It'll have an effect, uh, within their realms, mm-hmm. uh, often amongst academics, uh, you'll, you'll see a, a reassessment uh, when, when somebody uh, sort of breaks through a, a window and says, hey, here's something that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to museums, they tend to be influenced more by the general public mm-hmm. than by academics. Uh, now, that's not to say that change isn't coming because Hamilton changed everything. Of course. Uh, Hamilton uh, made the story of the founding fathers uh, the proverbial old white dead guys. Uh, it, it made that a story that was much more accessible to a much wider audience. Uh, all it did was was recast them as people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear in some of the traveling shows they're going to recast them as women on occasion. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they're basically not making any changes. Uh, they're using Ron Chernow's book. The book's been around for a long time. Uh, it's a pop history. You know, it's it's not like. High academic history, but it's it's decent enough for, for the purposes of making a musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all they did was recast it. They just said, "Hey, this story applies to everybody uh, and that that has blown open uh, a lot of avenues. A lot of people are now thinking more deeply about it. Uh, and I think that structured experiences like Hamilton uh, are going to very much affect the way, the way that we do, uh, do history
0: in museums. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm fascinated by Hamilton. When I was uh when I was younger, my mom, the magnificent Lynn Hughes, uh produced a documentary um on uh Aaron Burr around uh the duel with Hamilton. was Um, this the one
1: with Richard Dreyfus? Yup.
0: Oh my gosh, I remember that one. Yeah. (laughs) Um and it was and and like it's been it's been a constant, it has been a constant struggling point because I, you know, I've as sort of as an adult interpreting history come up in inside of that debate which is still very heated it's interesting that hamilton's getting the stage which I, which is totally unsurprising given you know given the fact that at the end of the day the hamiltonians won the yeah. that won <laughs> won the pr war of of the uh, of the early uh, early 19th century and to
1: be fair burr had a lot to do with them winning that pr campaign he absolutely. did not handle it well no he
0: did like and again this is this is to to the victors go the story he was not a likable person no. he was fighting and he was fighting against he was like in a lot of ways he was he was extremely radical in a lot of other ways he was just a guy trying to you know do the thing that politicians do so the question is as we start to lean more into popularized history as a as a an entry point to deeper historical investigation for for people in general how do we maintain some of that nuance because like i'm not saying i would never argue that aaron burr was that that burr or hamilton were perfect or totally broken but there's so much more depth there um so i like i I think that some of some of that's the, the responsibility of of us as consumers of this media but you know there's also there's an onus i think that gets pushed on rightfully or not to the museum culture and and uh public historians
1: well, I think the first thing I would say is that museums do not universally succeed in this. Yeah. Uh, every museum has bias. Now, uh, that's that's not a surprise to anybody. I, you're not going to find a lot of people that push back against that. And oftentimes those, those biases are things that we aren't going to argue against. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, there was a director at, the, at an air and space museum in California, and he swore up and down that uh, his museum had no bias whatsoever. Uh, there was a director of a maritime museum, a neighboring maritime museum, uh, who told him your entire museum is about man's noble fight against gravity? There's a narrative there. There's you know it's and that's okay. People aren't going to say flight isn't important, uh, and, and you're similarly going to get that with with more complex topics like slavery. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find a lot of people saying slavery was great. We should do slavery again, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think that museums often get scared about leaning into their their uh, their narrative, their right. story. Uh, because they're so afraid of, of coming across as unreasonably biased. The thing is, most people, like I said with slavery, no slavery is bad. You can lean into that. It's okay to say slavery is bad, mm-hmm. uh, and people won't get offended by that. And if they get offended by that, screw that guy. You don't want him in <laughs> your museum. Uh, so, there, but again, there, there is nuance involved there, too, and that can get very uncomfortable. So when you get down to the details, that's where it gets difficult. Uh, and there's no formula, there's no good way to make a structured experience that can address all the nuances that you think are important. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are ways to, to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so for example, I've got this, this program coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, revolutionary London town, uh, at my museum. And, uh, it, it used to be when I was brought on board at the museum, it used to be, uh, British soldiers would come to the town in Hessians and they would, you know, burn an effigy, and it was very cartoony mm-hmm. uh, there were no There were never any British soldiers uh, stationed in our tiny little seaport town uh in fact the 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 modern gazetteer in seventeen sixty seven said that our town was a small, inconsiderable place. <laughs> the British did not give a crap about this place. They thought it was the middle of nowhere. Sure. Uh, and so it, it didn't really fit with the history of the town. It didn't fit with what people were really looking for, for a 4th of July celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to go to a 4th of July celebration and be surrounded by all the enemies of American liberty who are just telling you how dumb you are for liking liberty. That, that doesn't really fly. Sure. Uh, so we restructured the program and uh, I, I tried to build the experience around a single concept. And that concept is that there are gray areas. Mm-hmm. That, that's mm-hmm. Everything in the program serves that purpose of saying there are gray areas in the history of, of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes for the conflict between state and, and uh, what we would later call a federal government. Uh, that goes for the, the conflict between land and sea, mm-hmm. uh, between the obvious ones like British and, and uh, American rebels or enslaved people and their masters uh but it's it's all trying to say that there's a lot of space here that is undefined that is difficult that is liminal and you should just be aware that this exists that's the whole point of the program mm-hmm. uh so what we're doing this year is we're doing a, de- a reading of the declaration of independence um have you ever read the whole thing uh
0: i have but it's been i think i i probably a decade
1: it's uh it's an interesting document mm-hmm. um there's a lot, uh, a lot of layers to it. Uh, but one of the passages in there, uh, because it's just a litany of complaints about the king specifically. Right. Uh, and how much of that is actually his fault? You know, we can uh, talk about that some other time. Sure. But one of the passages in there is about uh, insurrections uh, and about the Indian savages and their way of war that that would spare no one. Interesting. Uh, and there's obviously a lot to say about that. These are rich dudes in Philadelphia who are not living on the frontier, uh, but many of them are slave owners. Uh, there's, there's a lot to read into that. Right. Rather than stop the reading and say, okay, everybody, listen to me. I have opinions about this. Mm-hmm. I like history. You like history. Now you're going to listen to me tell you what to think. Right. People can pretty much draw their own conclusions off of that passage. The thing is, when I read it last year for this this program— I'm a white dude I was literally wearing a wig uh, and stockings and I, I just read through the entire Declaration of Independence and that passage kind of got lost in everything else So this year we're having different people read different passages mm-hmm. uh, and that passage this year is going to be read by one of our uh, one of our great interpreters volunteer interpreter uh, Nastasha Gross and she is half Piscataway Indian uh, half African American. Mm-hmm. So when, some, when, when she reads that passage, she is f- signposting it. She's telling people, hey, pay attention. Right. Look who is reading this passage. Right. This passage has a lot more implications than just what do white men think and feel. What, what does this really mean? Uh, so the, the idea is giving people the opportunity to think about that, signposting it, highlighting it, mm-hmm. without telling them what to think.
0: Right. I think that's really cool, and I think that that sort of points back to what Hamilton is doing, which is using a recasting and 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 allowing us to sort of accept a reinterpretation in the space of American history to signal to the audience either whether whether it's in a theater or at a museum or at an event that this is something that we should look at and maybe look at in a different light, pointing to it in a way that gives us pause is a really fascinating thing. It seems like a really powerful tool.
1: It is. It's, it's um, tangential learning is the uh, best way to describe it. Uh, and tangential learning is, is not as useful in the classroom. The classroom is for actual learning. It's sitting down and, and uh, getting and hitting the books and, and uh, collecting information, learning how to structure arguments. Tangential learning is important for structured experiences. And there's a lot of different ways you could make that work. Hamilton is masterful at tangential learning. Uh, So it it does it through both getting people interested, uh, which then prompts them to do the research themselves, to find out for themselves, Mm -hmm. but it also does it through the mechanics of the medium itself. Uh, So Lin-Manuel Miranda was talking about the character of the Marquis de Lafayette and how the Mm -hmm. first time that Lafayette is introduced, uh, he doesn't speak very quickly and his vocabulary is very restricted. And the last time we see him, he is just like... Laying out all the words. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. this really intense, rapid-fire uh, 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 explosion of rap. And that shows his evolution as a person. Mm-hmm. That The medium of singing, and, and specifically of hip-hop, mm-hmm. uh, shows how he has become more American. How he has learned more of the language. And learned how to embrace things that he was interested in before, but didn't really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and museums are experiences. We are selling experiences. People go to the gift shop, but they don't go to museums to go to the gift shop. Mm-hmm. They go to museums to have an experience. Right. Uh, you don't get to take anything away. You don't get to carry the Mona Lisa off the wall of the Louvre. You right. get to to go there, see it, experience it in person, uh, fighting all the crowds, and then you get to go home and say how you saw the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm.
0: Firstly, a quick aside, I will never forgive LaFont for existing. Why did you have to build DC like a stupid fort (laughs) like why like you know i like i get i i get the whole like yeah dc was was constructed as this military as a military protectorate like you have to make this thing that's defensible because when we first constructed the city that bit of urban planning was all about okay a lot of people are going to try and kill us let's make it hard for them to get here but like (laughs) let's take a grid and then turn a grid 90 degrees and put that down and then let's put a wheel on it like Come I, I on, think dude. I think that
1: you're you're uh, you haven't seen the History Channel documentary that informs us that it is, in fact, uh, all Illuminati imagery that's built into the city. That's the real reason that it, it sucks to drive around there. Uh, aliens. Aliens. <laughs> 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 <And> um. <laughs> that's that's another another good while we're, we're on the topic. I'm going sure. to hate on the History Channel for a little bit here because mm-hmm. the History Channel is an example of having all the resources at your fingertips that you need and being too freaking lazy to do it,
0: I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna combat you on that real quick. The History Channel used to make good documentaries. The problem is money. So the problem is that reality television and re, re quote unquote reality documentary work is really easy and really cheap to make, and even easier to sell. And 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 I think this is changing. And and I think what's amazing about What's amazing about what's happening right now in this country is that more and more people want real, want real information. They want actual history, and so so that dynamic is shifting a little bit, which it, which I hope I hope we take advantage of. But there was this period of time between like, you know, between Survivor and you know the last year and a half, really, when documentaries weren't like documentaries weren't things that you sold like like the history channel started losing money discovery started losing money and it was so much easier to when you have to market when you start marketing more channels and trying to figure out divergent revenue streams and uh, you know addressing the internet age and the transition onto netflix where commercials don't sell as well to Say okay, cool. What's the cheapest, fastest way we can make something? And it's reality TV. It's you know, it's it's TLC. It's you know the, the 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 you know docudrama, which isn't real. It isn't history. It's not documentary, but it it's cheap and it's fast and it and people will consume it like candy. And thankfully, we figured out like we're I think like we've been there have been people who've been making really really good compelling. And, and important documentaries for a very long time, but I think it's only in the last it's only in the last eighteen months that we as a as a media consuming populace have learned to enjoy our vegetables again um which means there's a lot of good stuff out there that people can find and consume that is interesting and fascinating and has a lot of valuable information to say, but it also means that we're now opening up the space to start making it and consume and 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 putting it out there for people in a bigger way again which I think could be very powerful.
1: And I'm going to actually push back as well because I think that those are not necessarily exclusive. The economic mm. uh, mm-hmm. pressures on on the History Channel are undeniable. They, they were actually not doing very well and they, they went very quickly uh, uh, up mm-hmm. uh, after, mm-hmm. after they went a different direction. But uh, that is assuming that the uh, format that they were using was exclusive of telling history, and it's not. You can use reality shows to do so without putting as much effort into it as you might think. PBS had a series, uh, a whole bunch of different series, actually, mm-hmm. on people living uh, as though they were in the
0: past. Yeah. Uh,
1: and now, granted, that's that's going to be expensive with costumes and and stuff like that. Instead of just getting into a truck with some creepy guy who's driving through Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, But uh, it can still be done. And the History Channel had another one, actually, that almost worked. Uh, And it was about uh, these people retracing the steps of Stanley in the famous expedition uh, in the 19th century um, Mm -hmm. through Africa. Which, in itself, like, that's not going to take a lot of effort. You can still do the reality show format. You can follow these guys around and they can bitch at each other and, and drink their pee or whatever. But you also can then pepper it with the experiences of what is it like there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not going to take a lot of screen time and therefore not a lot of effort. Uh, this stuff is all freely available online. You can go find the, the journals from these explorers. Uh, and you word search, control F, find what you need. But they didn't even do that. They, they were so lazy. They just were like, oh, look, Africa, it's terrible.
0: Well, okay, thanks. Thanks somehow, and let's not go far down this road, but somehow we switched to paying people who have no business informing anyone's opinion gobs of money to be reality television stars. We we somehow made the switch from this is cheaper, so let's do it, to we can somehow monetize this obscenely. Let's pay the Kardashians millions of dollars to be on TV all the time. And, and I think, I mean... I wonder, just sort of as an open question, if there's a way to take some of that momentum and leverage it back the other way, so that we can start and as as the appetite as the appetite of of American audiences both in the um in the experiential space, a la Hamilton or you know museum visitorship, what have you. Or in the you know in the in the visual media or, or auditory media space, start to leverage that a little bit more. And I think I think I don't know I don't know as many of them, but do you know of any podcasts that are doing it or or online like not necessarily paid, but you know donation based structures that are starting to do this a little bit more um, in a way that people are looking for.
1: The only real example I, I can think of of, of building experiences for people, um, based on, on history, uh, in a way that, that is somewhat profitable is video games. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a trend in, in video games called historical tourism, uh, where the idea is you can go into the past and experience some of the past. And some of these are immensely profitable. Uh, the Assassin's Creed franchise, uh, made millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, and, uh, this is despite some, some very serious flaws with their storytelling, some mm-hmm. very serious flaws with, uh, uh, what they thought their audience wanted. Um, there's, there's a lot of conspiracy bullshit at the game that, sure. that people don't really care about because the actual appeal is historical tourism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't want to, you know, do this Illuminati alien bull crap. You want to go back to the past, meet fascinating people and kill them. Uh, and it does a fantastic job of that. Uh, the, the, um, the one that of course is closest to my heart is 18th century America. So they did one on, uh, the American revolution and they did a, about one third, one quarter scale recreation of Boston Mm -hmm. with all the appropriate streets Mm -hmm. with excellent atmosphere. And it was riveting. People loved it and they made money hand over fist with that. Now, obviously that's a major production. You have to start off with a lot of cash, right? Uh, but it's still possible. And uh, you do see some uh, lower-budget attempts at that that work pretty well. Uh, years and years ago, there was the Mount and Blade series mm-hmm. uh, about knights. And it's vaguely fantasy. There's no magic. There's no wizards or dragons or anything like that. It's all, you know, sort of real-world-feeling stuff, but it's not based on real kingdoms or set in real time. Sure. Uh, nonetheless, it provided a historical experience of going on military expeditions in medieval Europe. And people, again, just loved it. Um, there was a, a successful spin-off of that uh, called Napoleonic Wars, uh, in which uh, it's a multiplayer game. There's no narrative to it, but you could play as basically any nation that was involved in the Napoleonic Wars. And within those, there's a bunch of different, you know, units like infantry, artillery, sailors, officers, generals. And one thing that I found really fascinating about that uh, is that as a built experience, often the mechanics uh, are justified at every step of the way. Right you try to find some way to make uh, the roles the player can take on have some benefit to the actual gameplay. Uh, but they realized that this is historical tourism. Right. People don't necessarily need to be handheld to do it. So they introduced all these roles of musicians. Mm-hmm. And the musicians did literally nothing for the game. You, you could not <laughs> hurt anybody. You could only be killed. That was all that happened. But you got to walk around with a bagpipe or a horn or a drum. And they would form these bands that would march slowly into the field while everybody else is busy killing each other, and they would play songs together. And it was amazing to see that every time that you would go online to play this game, there were dozens of people who had no interest in playing the game (laughs) as it's built. Just being musicians and hanging out and making people listen to Sky Boat Song over and over again on the bagpipes. (laughs) So they understood that there is a thirst for this, mm-hmm. that it isn't just about the mechanics of the game. It's about the experience. People want to experience the past. And again, they, they made quite a bit of money off of, off of these games, off of Mountain Blade and Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. And that took much less investment than the AAA titles of, of Assassin's Creed.
0: One thing I'll say, and I think for from, from more of a textbook um, perspective and i think it's been skewed a little bit in like the civilization games the old age of empires age of empires 2 was fascinating because as you were playing if you went into if you were a big enough nerd and you went into all of the the click down detail about all of the characters and about all of the the unit roles like i did when i was you know <laughs> playing those games forever ago um it was really in depth, encyclopedic. Like this is when this person lived. This is the role this person played in history. And and I would I would. It's hard to say that it wasn't heavily biased and Eurocentric, but it like it it was a good primer in terms of getting you started thinking about how William Wallace would never ever ever you know come up against any sort of Egyptian forces. But <laughs> it was. It, but outside of the mechanic of the game, the actual lore that existed there was fascinating. And they
1: also do things uh, w- within the Age of Empires series that emphasizes the interaction of, of these different um, nations, of these different military units, mm-hmm. of economy. There is a lot of tangential learning going on there, even though the game itself is clearly an abridgment of history, abridgment being very generous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting because uh, Age of Empires II is still seen as an excellent historical game. Yeah. Age of Empires 3, on the other hand, is, uh, if I may curse, utter shit. Yeah. And not just because of the mechanics, so that's a big part of it. Uh, also because it just did not care about the history at all. Uh, there's there's one cut scene, you can go on YouTube and find it, uh, where a character in the French and Indian War is in Colorado. He's traveled from Virginia to Colorado, overland. What? Yeah. Uh, and he is trying to stop the Russian forces with their big Turkish guns who've marched down from Alaska. So he gets miners, and these are like 49er, like cartoonish Mm -hmm. gold miners Mm -hmm. with their floppy hats Mm -hmm. to try and blow up passes to bury the Russians who are, for some reason, being led by an English fop. Uh, That English fop is hoping that these Russians will come and intervene on behalf of the French... And so the hero buries them by blowing up TNT, which won't be invented for another hundred years. Yeah, and all of this had to do with some, uh, as as I was saying, with the Assassin's Creed games, uh, some conspiracy bullshit sure. uh, with the Fountain of Youth and sure, crap sure, sure, like sure, sure. that. And the people who played the game were frankly offended by how dumb and contrived it was. Sure, they were. They would much rather have seen what they saw in previous games which was actual campaigns. Joan of Arc, Genghis Khan. Those are cool. You know, the French and Indian War actually happened. Yeah. Why, why can't we just do we that? Do that. Yeah. Why are there knights? Why, why are what what is this?
0: My biggest criticism of uh, Assassin's Creed 3, which is the one that takes place during the American Revolution, was a similar criticism to the one I had of Black Flag, which was that you set aside the interesting storytelling which could be presented in service of the history. And I, I think this sort of goes back to sort of an, a more intersectional view. The main character of, uh, of Assassin's Creed three is uh, part native American, part uh, half native American, half English. I can't remember if it's Navajo or he's supposed to
1: be, it's a fictional tribe, it is, but he's, a fictional... he's speaking Mohawk and the he's actor Mohawk. was Mohawk. Okay.
0: Okay. He's so, so thank you. Uh, but, you so much so much of the earlier Assassin's Creed games where the interesting thing about, for example, the first Assassin's Creed game is that it's taking place during the Crusades, and while the world that you're living in is entirely fictionalized and, and absurd, the actual structure of the Crusades and the visuals there are, are fascinating and and interesting and, and sort of and and run parallel to um to a a reasonable narrative around the the Crusades. And so much of the story is about this character's development and learning and sort of coming up through the space. And I think it would have been a fascinating exercise in Assassin's Creed 3 to have that same narrative uh, around the player character's development. Like you you, you start out as a kid and then you suddenly turn into an adult and there's no, there's an allusion to learning and and development, but there's no actual exploration of what it was like or what it would have been like. To be part Mohawk living in that time, in that era, sort of as as the Ameri- as the American colonies are attempting to become a single unified entity, but become a unified entity that doesn't include you, that you're not a part of. How do you interact with that? How do you become an economic and military advisor in that space and 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 juggle that? And I think that you know, while it's not entirely the responsibility of uh, it's not entirely the responsibility of of media or gameplay to do that it would have been an interesting exploration and one of the cool things that black flag did is it had freedom cry which was this paid dlc where you play as the former slave first mate um, of of the of the primary campaign whose name is currently escaping me but it's a it's a game about it's a game about slavery in the Caribbean and about facing that as a freedman and as someone who has the the power and resources to do something about it. And while the historical accuracy of that structure is is sort of set aside in a lot of ways the commentary aspect of it and and the and the sort of and the not not just the commentary but the the and this is this is what I'm this is what I I'm going for what I started out trying to get to the capacity to open up the perspective of the player who who generally speaking, you know, the most people who play video games are relatively, you know, most people who play video games at that level are, you know, have a relatively decent income and are white like the and, and are men the predominance of of people who play video games fall into those buckets and being able to expose them to this kind of experience and create an emotional tie to what that experience would be like, um, I think is really valuable both because it it contextualizes that history in a very interesting way. And it alludes to a a contemporary commentary um, that I think for me, looking at the American education system, isn't easy to find everywhere
1: it is yeah it's true that that it does expose you to things that you wouldn't see and and it is not strictly historical there there's a lot of things in it that obviously didn't happen but it does allude to a lot of things and and the more important thing is that it's capturing the spirit and the nature of it um it's giving power where there was no power and that that is a whole other debate but Uh, Aside from that, it does a very good job of saying, hey, here's how incredibly unjust this system was. Uh, And and as you said, it alludes to larger uh, problems that still exist today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that's a good example of them listening to historical consultants. Uh, Historical consultants don't get, I've done a little bit myself, you don't get to say no. If you say no, then generally speaking, the creators will do it anyway, because all you're doing is saying no. Right. You have to provide alternatives. You have to provide alternatives that work. Uh, so, for example, I, I was uh, a talking head for a ghost hunter show uh, called the R.I.P. Files, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of of ghost hunter shows, but I understand they're making a buck. Uh, and so, I decided to to do my best to to help them out. Uh, they had this this one particular find. It's actually for for the museum that I work at right now, London Town. There was an archaeological find. Of a hexagonal, flat-bottomed pit filled with six headless birds.
0: That's terrifying. Yeah,
1: it's really weird. Like that's uh, super creepy. It's yeah, it's that's perfect. If you want a ghost <laughs> show, like there's this archaeological find of a bunch of headless birds at a hexagonal pit. Yep. Um. There's there is no. Um, Material that could be dated. So we don't know how old the pit was. It could have been anything from the 1600s to the 1960s mm-hmm. uh, And uh, we don't know where the heads are uh, There's there's a lot of theories about what happened. Maybe it was cockfighting uh, Well, if, if that's the case, then why be so careful in the way you dig the pit? Uh, the, the obvious uh, solution is uh, that it must have been animal sacrifice uh, the thing is that even though Many West African people were, were kidnapped and sold in in the town. Uh, the nature of West African animism that, that used animal sacrifices is you eat the animals. Right. So and why would you... Yeah. Yeah. All the skeletons were articulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still together. They mm-hmm. didn't eat any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is a very creepy, weird find, but no good explanation. Right. Well, they really wanted to go the route of voodoo. Mm. And uh, I was kind of like, okay, well, voodoo doesn't really apply here because... Uh, a lot of the people who were in this town, a lot of the enslaved people, were practicing animism. They just carried their religion across. It wasn't as heavily influenced by uh, by Western tradition as Voodoo would later become. Uh, and uh, Voodoo, as we think of it, is not really a Chesapeake thing. Uh, so it's it's an inaccurate way of doing it, and it's it's a lazy way of saying "ooh, creepy witch doctors," right? Uh, and and vaguely racist. So. What I did was they asked me about this and I said, well, uh, they'll ask you the question and they'll, they'll cut the question out of the the uh, documentary and they just show your response. Right. So uh, they said, well, okay, tell us about about voodoo. And I said, well, some people would say voodoo, but that doesn't really apply in this case and here's why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I, I tried to spin it at the end by saying, well, that makes this even more mysterious. Mm-hmm. All the things that we think we know, all of these solutions we think we have, we don't.
0: Mm-hmm. This is
1: just some bizarre... Find right. clearly created by a person that we can't explain. Right. That to me is way creepier.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh,
1: when the final episode came out uh, for the RIP files, it was. Uh, they got to that point, they cut out my voiceover, and they did this like PowerPoint show <laughs> of East African, so not even the correct region, right. East African religious rituals, uh, many of which are not really that like freaky or scary. It's just. People practicing their religion and they did this bad voiceover of like so this is voodoo and mm. and the uh, strange brown people came and did creepy things to the white people and it's yeah. like don't do that yeah don't you didn't have to go that route it's, right. it's not only less scary it's also kind of offensive
0: and it contributes to it contributes to the continual narrative of otherness in, in a way that in a way that doesn't is entirely uninformative like you can talk about you can talk about other cultures in a way that contextualizes them and says okay cool this is this is where this comes from and and this is why this is done this way and this is you know and this is the through line that we can draw back from where we are now where this happened historically and all of the contributing contributing and mitigating factors as opposed to this is spooky this is weird, <laughs> and this is this is from people who don't look like you. Which I think, which I mean, and
1: every time that some portion of mass media goes down that route of this is creepy because it's different, I just think of D.W. Griffith's *Birth of a Nation* mm-hmm. and oh yeah, the cartoonish on. caricatures uh, that uh, are clearly offensive, even were offensive at the time. Uh, and, uh, just how easy it is to do that, how lazy it is and how unnecessary it is. You can tell captivating stories without doing that. And it doesn't take that much effort.
0: One of the, one of the amazing things, uh, that I hope that I hope plays out, uh, and one of the amazing things that we keep talking about that that's playing out in Hamilton, but that is also happening in contemporary film is that money the money is following audience demand, and audience demand is diversity. Audience demand, like audiences, more and more are demanding stories and characters that are not contrived, that are not two dimensional or that are not one dimensional. Excuse me. Although two dimensional isn't really helping all that much. <laughs> I mean, like you need you need seriously multi dimensional characters who are doing interesting things and who are representative of a broader audience base and I think this is uh, you know it, it parallels the demand for diverse media the demand for people seeing groups of people that look like them and looks look like their social circles And you also see it
1: for for people that are not part of that social circle uh, that are that are not uh, working class that are not uh, minority or people of color mm-hmm. um, there are plenty of heterosexual, white Anglo-Saxon men, uh, Protestants, who are still interested in learning other stories. It right. just makes for a more interesting narrative. Right. Uh, not only is it the right thing to do, it also is more interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and uh, sort of to bring it back around, that's, that's something that we're seeing in museums right now, mm-hmm. is people want experiences that are more diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a good example is, uh, have you, what was the last house museum that you went to? Can you even remember?
0: Um. no yeah I, yeah no it's like <laughs> but i mean and and that's that's unfortunate as someone who who has probably gone to more house museums in the last five five years by you know double digits than the average American um, it, but it's been I, 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 it, it was one of it was one of the houses in Virginia um, I can tell you that much and, and <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> there but there are a lot of them <laughs> And the thing with,
1: with house museums and this is something that that many people in the, the museum field understand even in house museums uh, is that these museums are often relics not just in the historical sense of this is a, a piece of the past but in the way that they've been interpreted. Mm -hmm. Most house museums are about rich white people who frankly aren't that interesting. There's a lot, I've worked at some of these house museums and the narratives that they tell focus on these seemingly important people who have a lot of money and the house is very static. Everything is placed just so. uh, and, And that is not an interesting story. That is a boring story Mm -hmm. uh and there's there's a lot of them we've all been to them yeah uh there's uh a phrase that that we sometimes use uh in-house of uh the historic house museum death march you get into (laughs) one of these museums you get with a very passionate uh very well-meaning volunteer but you spend a long time listening to things that you just don't care about right and uh, museums are learning that that isn't going to work long-term. You can't just keep doing that and expect people to come because they feel obligated to go because it's historic and therefore important. Right. Uh, and, and you do see some breakaway from this. From some places that that I was honestly surprised to see. Some years ago, I went to the Breakers in uh, Newport. Mm-hmm. It's the... Uh, uh, the mansion of Newport. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you walk through their library, they have these walls that are all covered in silver. Mm. And one of the curators says that uh, the uh, the silver wasn't, var- wasn't um, uh, rusting. And so they did a test on it, and they found out that it was all platinum. The room is Whoa. literally platinum. These guys were filthy, Jesus. stinking rich. Uh, but they also found that despite this being so impressive, so beautiful the audience was frankly losing interest. They were getting bored. And so they went the direction of including the lives of servants in every tour. They open the servants' quarters, they open the kitchen, Mm -hmm. and you walk through and you hear the stories. They actually record oral histories of people who used to be servants or children of servants there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you hear their stories as you walk through. Mm -hmm. And it humanizes the space dramatically. For sure. And that's something that we are starting to see more of in, in house museums is including the servants, including the enslaved, uh, including everybody else who made that house work, not just the rich guy who was there every now and then.
0: Right. And it's fascinating to me that it's taken us this long in a country that has spent the last dozen decades post-Civil War claiming a an origin story of self-made bootstrap from, from the ground up history that it's taken us this long to embrace that the lives of the people that make spaces function are more interesting to us than the lives of the people who lived in those spaces. I mean, cause, cause it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. And, and it, it's fascinating to me that it's taken this long. Um, and I hope that, I mean, I, to, to that end, I hope that it's a, it's an ongoing trend and that we don't lose, that we don't lose sight of, of the value of that history as things move forward.
1: I'd like to think that, that it's a trend that will continue. Uh, certainly it's, it's a direction that I intend to go as, as does my museum. We, we all want to go the direction of keeping it alive. Right. Uh, that, that static museums, they're not as interesting. They're, they're not as, uh, important. In my opinion, if you're not getting the full story, then then why bother going a vi- seeing a very sanitized version of it? Uh, and, and it is a direction that some museums, some big museums are pouring a lot of money into. Uh, mm-hmm. Monticello being an excellent example of mm-hmm. this. Uh, they, they completely rebuilt Mulberry Row, where all the enslaved people lived. Mm-hmm. Um, Mount Vernon has done something similar with with their slave uh, enslaved uh, dwelling places. Uh, And you are seeing a trend all around uh, the country to better include those stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that given the investment that's going into it, it's, it's a trend that has gained a lot of steam and a lot of momentum.
0: Yeah. That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. I want to take a minute to talk about what's been going on in the world. This episode especially felt like a good fit for this conversation. We recorded this episode back in June, two weeks before July 4th. As you heard, we talked about bias and touched up against issues of race, and while I believe we had some minor insights, it was by no means earth-shattering. I hope, dear listener, that my voice connects with you, that those of you who might disagree with me or who don't think of the world in the ways I do or as often find value and growth here. But my voice is not the voice I hope you end with. There are a lot, and I mean a lot, of people to look to. If what's been happening in the U.S. is giving you pause, upsetting you, and you don't know who to look to or what to do, what to say, seek out reporting from folks like Sean King, Roxanne Gay, Tanasi Coates, the Young Turks. Donate to places like the Southern Poverty Law Center, Black Lives Matter and Planned Parenthood. Listen to what organizations like those are saying about the landscape and their needs. Challenge yourself and people around you who aren't listening to those voices that don't look or sound like yours. Be compassionate and be firm. I believe we can become a better people, a better world together, but we as white folks need to let go of the larger show and focus on making changes in our own circles. You can find out more about Kyle at applyingtoeverything.xyz guests. Check out some of his programming at historiclondontown.org and read his blog at britishtars.com. You can find out more about this show at applyingtoeverything.xyz We're on iTunes and Google Play. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell your friends. It's how we get new listeners. I'd like to thank Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount Saint Misery off of The Great Resolve. The Great Resolve and their new album Builder are available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Chiara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next week for a conversation with Sadie Lee about making art, dancing, and moving forward by being still. Talk to you then.